This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, this book of poems, Poems from the Heart, and the author is Her Majesty Laxmi Ben Harani, and Her Majesty joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, ma'am. It's nice to be on the show, Steve. Great to have you with us all the way from London. And you have a very unique background. Obviously, in the introduction, everyone heard me call you Her Majesty, ma'am, and we'll explain that in a bit. But let me read a couple things you've written about your book. You've written this about your book, about your poetry. You say this, they have the power of words that will change your life, not like the usual poetry books, but through poetry and not therapy, give you giving you the strength when you are feeling down, no matter the situation. And it will also make you feel loved when you are feeling down, as you are not a nobody. You are somebody. Do not put yourself down. And your background also, I know you have self-esteem therapy. You help people. So this book reflects a lot of this passion you have for relationships and helping people and some other themes that we'll talk about in your book of poetry, Poems from the Heart. Well, let's start out. Tell me about yourself. Let's give give us your background, especially your historical background, your family, your ancestry. Right. Um, my ancestry goes back to the 5th century, uh, Persian, the Persian Empire. Now, from there, we were invaded. So we had to move from what they now call Iran to um, India. And then we made our way to Gujarat, where we integrated with the Gachi Lewa Patel community. So that is where we settled now. And Hirani itself is actually um, a Persian um, surname. And being the youngest child of the late king, I was appointed by Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II um, as the uh, queen of the royal family. Now, this obviously has uh, affected your life. It's, it's amazing how our roots give us a, a view of ourselves, a view of life, a, a view of our responsibilities. Uh, as you approached your book of poetry, uh, all this kind of combined, I'm sure, to uh, launch all these words and these feelings, these passions. Absolutely. I mean, it was like um, when I wrote this poem, it was to motivate everybody throughout the world to send a strong message to the world that you, every one of you, got the power to change whatever you're, whatever you're going through. And this is the first time you've gone public on your background. I yes, indeed. We um, actually live mostly a normal life. We have relationships, health problems. We have our own ups and downs, just like everybody else. And just because we're royals doesn't mean we don't understand other people's um, problems. That we're, what, one peg above the everybody else? And this is uh, one of two books. Is You have uh, another book of poetry that you've already written or in the making? Um, no, I've already written one. Um, and, uh, second edition is called Poems from the Heart 2 for our beloved children. It's um, actually designed for children and it goes up to um, teenagers. So parents can actually read it to their own children. And when, as children do grow up, they can read it themselves as well. It's very nurturing, loving, empowering. Nobody wants their own child to grow up so fast. 
you want them to play as you know as a child and um have all these same activities as a child instead of having like adult responsibilities, wearing all that makeup and dresses. And I don't believe in any of that. I believe a child should be allowed to be a child. Let them grow in their own way. With obviously the nurture of parents and their own surroundings. Well, these two... Who they interact with. These two books, uh, you say, is power in your hands to change your life and... It not only gives you strength, love, support, understanding, and compassion, but also the funny side of things in life and that hot stuff that everyone likes, which will make you laugh and nod your head and say, yes, that is so true. Well, why don't we start right now of having you read one of your Mm -hmm. poems. Uh, It's the first one in your book, A Habit It Has Become. Okay, Steve, I will definitely read a habit it has become. A habit it has become of being separated from you. I am alive without you, with the pain in my heart. I take every breath but do not want to live as I think of being alone without you. A habit it has become of being separated from you. But you are in my every breath, my every beat of my heart. As I live without you, a habit it has become of being separated from you. I love you and want you, so please come one more time as you are my beating heart, my love in my life. That's it. Well, that must have been from a very intense experience with someone. Hmm. I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> It must be because I've been watching quite a lot of films. Ah. And it's actually inspired me to um, okay. write this poem because I know there's a lot of heartbreak going on out there. Mm-hmm. Mm. There certainly is. Another thing yeah. about your your ancestry, you say that your book... Uh, it's been written by a queen, never has been done before. You're born as a warrior-blooded royal. Now, explain what a warrior-blooded royal is. Right. A warrior-blooded royal means that I come from a royal family which mostly went to war. And that's why we, we have what we call the Persian Empire. And we stood up for justice. Well, we know all around the world, right? Well, the Persian Empire was uh, very vast at one time, wasn't it? Oh, it was. It was blo- quite bloodthirsty, but not anymore, obviously. Right, right. Yeah. Well, your poems uh, have an environmental conservation theme. They have obviously relationship themes, better communication. There's a lot of powerful feelings in them, and even a kind of a motherly protective feeling. Uh, some of your poetry. Why don't you read another one for us? Sickness, I will read, I think, for that one. Uh, Sickness, for many, is for life. External, eternal, that is all part of life. A pain for life that many do not want to understand. But it is part of life now everyone must understand. So bring yourself to understand that this is a pain for life. You must deal with it and make a stand. If there is hope for a better life, grab it with both hands. As life is still wonderful, beautiful, embrace it with both hands. Change for the better and make a stand. Sickness brings about discrimination by the ones we love. It brings about discrimination all over the world. People treating the sick that they are inferior, for they are the ones who are inferior. This is the mentality of the so-called normal people who think they are just fine when they're a bit loose in their head most of the time. As if they look closely, they will think twice as who is sick now as this is all part of life. Very well done. That really... uh, Thank you. That's really, when you have sickness, it takes quite an attitude to uh, get through it. 
It does. I mean, there are a lot of um, abuse going on in, in the whole world. I mean, you've got family members abusing their own loved ones as well. It's quite sickening to know. Why don't but we... they, but they, everybody needs to understand that they are sick. They need help. They need love. They need support. They need compassion. Nobody likes to be sick, but they are. And nobody knows what's around the corner. That is not sure. in a bad way, Steve. I'm not saying it in a bad way, but nobody, whoever's healthy, able-bodied, ill-treat somebody, they don't know themselves what's around the corner. That's right. Life has yeah. a way of bringing us surprises. Yes, exactly. One day you could be walking and the next minute an accident can happen. Right. You don't know. Well, let's go to Cupid the Love Machine. Cupid, the love machine, the man with the golden bow and arrows. Cupid, the love machine, the man who shoots the arrows. Cupid, the love machine, bringing about love and sexual desires. Cupid, the love machine, gives your heart desires. As Cupid is the love machine. You can see, everyone, why these are called poems from the heart. Absolutely. <laughs> Poems from the heart. Yes. Oh, yes. So it's, you know, it's inspiration of what's going on in our world. And your your poems, you say, are about real-life experiences that people go through in life. Like we yeah. just... Yeah, absolutely. We, yes. Yes, we this, did. This uh, Cupid, the love machine, in our scriptures, our Hindu scriptures, he's actually known as Gambev. And he actually does shoot arrows and puts two people, puts them into, um, into a spell of love, and therefore they procreate. Well, let's go kind of switch gears here. We'll switch sure. uh, into conservation. You have one titled Beloved Animals of the World. Beloved animals of this world, we humans do not care for them so much as they hurt and die in inhumane ways. Full of ignorance, we carry on with our life, not looking at what is happening to the animals that God has made. We must open our eyes, mind and heart, and stand up for the animals that cannot speak for their pain. As they are too made by God with love, they are too the gift from above. Beloved animals of this world, we humans do not care for them so much as they hurt and die, die in inhumane ways. By helping and supporting animal charities goes a long way. They need our help and support today as they hurt and die in inhumane ways. We must not forget them as we still can give a little as we do to humanitarian charities as that too goes a long way. As every little we give to every one does go a long way. Very good. Very good. Well, we have uh, just a little bit of time left. I think we should close out with you reading. Uh, it looks like it's on page 17. Love is? Is that the one? Ah, oh, yes. Yes, Steve, it is. Yes, you will like this one. Love is like a bowl of chocolates. You just want to eat some more. Love is like the sun. It shines for so evermore. Love is like a golden thread, a lifeline for us all. Love is like a bowl of chocolates. You just want to eat some more. For love is like the ocean, forever lasting and so free. Love is what you make it as love is so free. That was well said and a great closing poem for this interview with Laxmi Ben Hirani and her book of poetry, Poems from the Heart, Her Majesty. Tell us how to get your book of poetry. How do we get it? Um, you can actually go online and get it from any website, any um, Amazon, uh, Author House, any uh, company. Just If you just Google it, it's there. HM, HRH, Laxiven, Hirani, Poems from the Heart. Thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. 
Thank you, Steve, for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Another Kind of Diamond, and the author is Gloria Bizu, and Gloria joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Gloria. Good morning. Great to have you with us. Thank Uh, you. And this book is a very serious, sobering kind of look. Uh, You talk about Isabel. Uh, She's 10 years of age, and she's sexually abused by a stepfather. And, of course, that is so tragic and absolutely intolerable. But it happens more and more, and it, of course, took away her innocence that was never recovered. And Boy, she goes through a lot where she's even forced to commit murder by negligent parents. I mean, this is a story that, unfortunately, it's probably more real than it is fiction. But let's find out, Gloria, about why you did this. First of all, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and then why you wrote this story. Okay. Uh, Thank you for, you know, kind of, I like the way you put it, you know, that's very good. That's exactly what I want to bring out, you know, the idea and, you know, the way you are putting it. The, my writing this book, I would say, is in two folds. Uh, the things that motivate somebody, you know, come from experiences that you have in the society. Uh, part of that experience was when I was growing up as a kid, you know, uh, I was about, let's say, six years old when my dad had to go to college, you know. So he left his children with his wife and went to college uh, so that we can have a better life in the future. Even though as a kid, I understood that my father had to leave, you know, you know, there was a very strong bond between me and my dad before he left home. So it affected me a lot, you know. But as time went by, I kind of tried to see how I can help my mom. She was alone, you know, taking care of five children. And one of us was always very ill. And I'm the second in the family, but my senior brother actually had to leave also to go go live, stay with an uncle, you know. So I became the first, the head of the family, so to speak. So taking care of my, key, uh, my brothers kind of made me, 
gave me that kind of feeling that I can do anything, you know. I can take care of them. I can take care of my mom. My dad is not at home. So I became the home hero. So I was doing everything. And that was in Nigeria. That was in Nigeria. You know, Port Harcourt. We were living in a city called Port Harcourt then. So kind of during that period, we had a lot of hardship, you know, nothing to eat sometimes. I wouldn't go to school. So my education suffered, you know. I kind of experienced the world in a different way. Because when my father was there, when I came into the world, it was everything I needed. I got food, whatever I wanted, I got it. You know, my father was a school headmaster then when I came to the world. So students would come to the house, take me, buy me whatever I want, help my mother out in the kitchen. So we are like, you know, living in affluence then. Then when he left, everything, you know, just like changed. I didn't understand what was going on anymore, and I was just about six years old then. So I suffered until my dad and my family really went through real hardship. So eventually my father came back, and when he came back, you know, I'm the only girl in the house anyway. So he was touched by what experiences that his family had to go through. So he went out because he noticed my education suffered, buying me all kinds of books, every novel in this, you know, he can find, he bought. Then he bought me this book called Lampsters from Shakespeare. I don't know if you have seen that, you know about the book. It's a Shakespearean book, you know, collection of Shakespearean stories. It's called Lampsters from Shakespeare. So one of the stories is called The Tempest. The Tempest is about Prospero and Mirinda. Hello? Yes. Okay. And the spirit area. So they kind of had the experience at sea. You know, they were running away from this uncle. That was then. I still remember the story. I didn't read it again. Since I was six, I still remember. Then uh, we were living then in a school compound, like I said. At the and they, directly in front of our house is the school field. And that school field, whenever it rains, it floods. So one, one day, the rain was falling into this pit, and it was flooded. And I was looking out from my window, and I thought I saw Prospero and Mirinda. And that field became a sea, <laughs> you know. So that was, you know, actually how my imagination became so sharp, because I could see them. And I was telling my parents that I needed to go outside, but they refused because of the rain. So when the rain stopped, I went out, checked everywhere. I didn't see Mirinda. I didn't see Prospero, you know. So that passed, and that was how I started thinking about so many things. Before then, I was not used to see, and but as I saw that flooded football, uh, football pit, I could see a sea. I could imagine what it is like. I could imagine exactly what was going on with Prospero and Mirinda and all that. Then that came and passed. Then eventually I went to high school, finished, you know, got married early at the age of 18, actually. I got married before I went back to college. So had my children, then went back to college. That was still very early for me, though, because I started 18 years old. So when I went back to college, I finished my first degree. Then I went in to do my master's degree in international relations, political science, science. Then I finished, got admitted to do my PhD, to study for my PhD. But due to some developments, like these things I'm telling you, the experiences I was having in my country then because of right. the book, I decided that I'm not going to stay. Then I, while I was in school, I had a shop, a store where I sell things like jewelry, fashion things. But one of the habits I formed was to go to the bus stations, you know, bus stop in Nigeria. When you go to the bus stop, that's where you meet the poor, you know, they are there, some of them begging for money, some of them, you know, just standing. They don't know where they are going. They don't have where to go. 
So sometimes I will go to the bus stop because I see a lot of children there that don't have food and all that, what to eat. And I remember how I used to feel when I was a kid, when I had nothing to eat and there was nobody to give me. It was terrible. So I would go there. If I have some extra cash, I would give, you know, talk to them. Then one day, one I was standing there and there was this girl crying, crying, you know, she covered her face with a scarf. And I noticed that she should, you know, maybe about 10 to 12 to 15, I can't just say, you know, because poverty sometimes make people not to mature, you know, fast. Right. You see some 10 years old, sometimes they look like 9 or 6. So I went talking with her. For a long time, she didn't want to say anything to me. But I continued, I insisted until she opened up to me and said that her stepfather is abusing her, you know, sexually. So what? And she said that if he does it to me again, I'm going to kill him. My goodness. That was it. The moment she said that, I talked to her about it, you know, say, why not go to the police? But I remember that Nigeria is not where you go to police with that kind of stuff because not going to walk that they'll just probably do some you know they won't take it up as a case to just die there so i talked her out of taking laws into her hands took her to my store helped her the little i can and followed up by telling her to come to my store to see me at least once in a week so that we talk about it you know so that was how i realized how serious this problem is. And know. so from that interaction with that young girl, you created yeah. this character, Isabel. That was how. Then mm-hmm. when I came here and I became an LVN, I went to work one day, you know, and I was talking with one of my colleagues. We are just talking generally about ourselves. And she told me that, do you know that I was not raised by my parents? I said, why? He said, because my father was abusing my younger sister, so I I had to be adopted. I said, my, this thing is like a serious issue. And she told me how she hated him and all that, and that he's dead now because this person that told me this thing is, you know, in her 60s now. And, you know, I said, okay, this is a real issue. Compare, you know, with what I had from this girl in Nigeria, this is really bad. That was how I started thinking about developing the character of Isabel, you know. Right. And, of course, we have uh, some, obviously, a very dysfunctional family that she's part of, and and she not only is abused, then she ends up committing murder, of, which obviously just ruins her life. Uh, so this book is a a very uh, violent yet uh, very real book, isn't it? I think so. I believe you. You know, the issue is that Isabel, uh, I don't actually feel that, you know, bl- I don't blame her so much for what she did, you know, at her age. Uh, I, she wasn't even thinking about consequences. So she took that, that, okay, she had to do what she had to do just because of her feelings. And thinking about 10 years old girl, that's the way she should be thinking. She wasn't, you know, rationalizing. She wasn't thinking about what will happen after I did this because that's not how 10 years old think. They act on the spur of the moment. So she just acted because of what was going on in her life, of which I don't blame her. But, you know, um, the thing is that it is a real issue because if you're reading it, you would think that this thing really happened. Somebody asked me, Does it, did this thing really, is it real? Did it happen to somebody that you know? And I said, no. But when you read it, you will see that Actually, this some this is something that happened to somebody because this is something that looks re- that is real, like you said, is real. Is kind of violent in that 
Isabel, you know, the way I see it, once you commit murder, once, I mean, it's like breaking virginity and you just go on, you know, like that. So she has done the first one when she was 10. She cannot, you know, see any reason why, what is, she, she, she did not understand that it is wrong to do that anymore. So she kind of see it as one of the things she could do because she did it as a kid and nobody caught her. She was never caught. She was very fortunate that another person, Lulu, was at the wrong place at the wrong time. So she kind of paid for Isabel's sins. She was the person that had to go to jail for what Isabel did. So she was free and she went ahead and did another one, you know. Uh, the anger as a kid, the things that happened to her, you know, brought about a lot of sadness in her life. But unfortunately, she it's not something she talk she talks about. Like if something happened to you and you talk it with people, you know, you tell people you are relieved. But Isabel doesn't like talking about her past. She never told anything to anybody about that part of her life. So she kind of the her was very very sad, but she had no way of um, relieving her tension. So most of the things she she does is within inside her, you know. So that makes her you know to become very very aggressive. She's not only violent; she's also very aggressive in her actions with her friends. In their discussions, you will see that she's very aggressive. She's, you know, always looking for a way out to hide from right. what she's feeling. Very, know. very destructive uh, life, yeah. very destructive behavior. She ends up, uh, after a divorce, moving in with a drug baron, and then she's also shot. Uh, she's, in fact, uh, it's uh, one road down a very destructive road that she even ends up with AIDS. Uh, well, yeah. Gloria, this is a, obviously a story with much impact as we read this because this is really going on in the lives of many young people today. Of Gloria Bizu, the title of the book, Another Kind of Diamond. Gloria, tell us how to get your book. I think it's already on the, um, through Auto House. You can order it. Let me get some of the, uh, numbers that, where you can no, call you, to order this book. Yeah, you can just, and uh, then, you can just huh? go on Author House and put in another kind of diamond and it will come yeah, up. Yeah, that's one yeah. place. Or you call these numbers, 978-14772. Three seven six five six. That's another place where you can get the book from, or you just put go to Auto House, put another kind of diamond. That's another place you can get it. You know, or you can also find it on Amazon, eBay, uh, Banks and Nobles. You know, bookstores. Right. Bookstores and everywhere. Then, uh, anywhere you buy books right. on the internet, you find exactly. my books there. Exactly. Very good, Gloria. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one's spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed. 
with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Pass Me the Rice. And the author, Robert G. K. And Bob joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bob. How do you do? Well, this book covers a two-year period in your life as a military advisor to the Vietnamese Navy who patrolled the waters of South China Sea to the Gulf of Siam, of, as you put it, with a semi-paramilitary force that was transformed into a formidable junk force and based on a small isolated island off the southern coast of Vietnam. Uh, there's also part two coming out, I guess, soon. I don't know if it'll be titled the same, like kind of the rest of the story. No, it's uh, actual title will be Betrayal of the Ti- of the Dragon. Betrayal of the Dragon. Okay, that'll be and kind that, of a... Yeah, that'll give you an explanation of uh, what happened and why it failed. And, and betraying the dragon is actually betraying the Vietnamese when our Congress cut off the funds, uh, although they were saying they were going to help them, uh, we pulled back. And uh, the Vietnamese found themselves with no backing, no supplies, no ammunition, and... Uh, Facing the North, who was backed by Russia and China, so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story. Well, that's I'm sure it is. And uh, this story, pass me the rice. You say it's not a war story per se because it covers the events encountered by, as you put it, an average naval officer assigned as an advisor to the Vietnamese Navy. Being you, I don't know how average you are, but. You certainly have a lot of experiences. Uh, you're very experienced. Uh, that's much more than average. Well, let's first of all, Bob, let's go back. Uh, how did you end up in Vietnam? What, what, what was going on? Well, I was on a uh, destroyer leader up in Newport, Rhode Island, and I was the uh, first division officer, which, which was like the janitor of the ship. We took care of everything, keeping the ship uh, ship shape and clean and rust-free. And uh, I felt like I was I was losing time uh, because of uh, my age grade. I was about five years behind my my uh, colleagues in the Navy because uh, I was married at the time and working my way through college. And uh, so it took me time to get my degree. Uh, once I got my degree, I came back into the Navy with a commission. So in order to try to catch up to my age grade, in other words. Uh, uh, my contemporary officers of the same grade, but they were younger, uh, I had to do something. And at the time, Vietnam was the only war we had. And in order to facilitate getting points to jump ahead of these guys, was to actually volunteer for Vietnam. Uh, I didn't realize how easy that was because uh, my first request to BUPERS or Bureau of Personnel, uh, I had orders within two days. <laughs> when I offered my volunteering. So uh, I thought that was a step by getting my ticket punched. By the time I came back, I'd have a jump over the guys that didn't go. No thought of, No <laughs> thought about uh, being killed or wounded? No, no. Uh, my, my background is uh, I'm, I'm Greek, and my, all my relatives are from Sparta, and I kind of like to think that their blood still runs through my veins, so there's a little bit of that, too. Uh, I think I'm warlike in nature, in my psyche. 
Well, you did become wounded. You lost your leg, and and even uh, I guess you retired for a bit. Not very long, though, did you? Well, I retired uh, in '69, uh, and I like to tell people uh, I didn't actually lose my leg. I know where it went. They chopped <laughs> it off in Great Lakes. Oh my goodness! And, uh, but the the big thing was that I got rid of some bad athlete's foot. So I I look at it in a positive sense. <laughs> okay. Well, how did you, you know, how how did you get back in? I mean, what here you are wounded without a leg. How does that work? Well, uh, as I said uh, in in past conversations, I was in contact with the uh, Admiral Zumwalt, who was in charge of the naval forces in Vietnam, whom I had met before I got wounded, and uh, we kept up a correspondence and. The fact that uh, I knew so many senior Vietnamese naval officers, uh, he thought it'd be good if I could come back as, a, as an officer. But when I was told that uh, if I did accept the recommissioning or staying in service after losing my leg, that if I decided to get out because of my disability, the Navy wouldn't consider it a disability because I had proved to them that I was wholly capable. So that uh, made me take my retirement, and in correspondence with him, he told me to come on back. He'd give me a job as a civilian. He had a project in mind, so I did. And I went right back to Vietnam after I got out in about seven days from the, my retirement till I landed in Saigon. And uh, that's when we started our project to help disabled veterans of the Vietnamese Navy. How do you feel about the Vietnamese military? Well... Uh, just like anything else, there there were good and bad in uh, the Vietnamese War. Uh, if your family had money, uh, you could get into the Marines, the Navy, the Air Force, the Rangers, uh, or the Airborne. Uh, if you didn't have money, you wound up in the Arvin, which was the Army of Vietnam. Uh, and they were the cannon fodder. So uh, most people used to look down on the, on the Arvin, but... There were groups in there that really held out, and if anybody has a chance to read the book, uh, I think it was Dark April, which explains the entire end of the war, uh, it'll show that some of those Vietnamese really fought to the death. And uh, the ones that I served with, especially the Navy and the Marines and the Airborne and the Rangers, these guys, I would fight with them any day of the week. Vietnam was a real black spot in United States history of going to war. It was a so-called unpopular war. Obviously, we all know soldiers came home and they were treated really badly, even spit upon. Uh, how did you deal with all that when you came home? Actually, I, I, I felt bad because the group of people that I was with uh, – most of them were were volunteers in the advisory group. Uh, I don't I don't ever remember meeting one that was drafted. So the volunteers and uh, uh, we went over there to do a job, and unfortunately we wound up with our hands being tied. Uh, there were things we wanted to do that word came down: don't do this, don't shoot unless they shoot at you first. Uh, don't go on this patrol. Uh, it's not being uh, prepared properly or it's not sanctioned by the head shed. Uh, so I felt bad. When I came back to the States, I realized that the amount of people that were against the war had to be influenced, I think, by the media because everybody seemed to be against the Vietnamese. Uh, the fact that we had people dodging the draft and burning their cards, burning the flag, going up to Canada. Uh, we get news of that back in Vietnam, and we just were wondering, what the heck are we doing here, you know, if we don't have the support back home? So it was uh, very disheartening, very disheartening to say the least. What was it like living amidst the Vietnamese, especially when you were on that small, isolated island? Well, First, first wind up with uh, three other Americans uh, on an island with uh, oh, roughly, I guess there were about 200 people, counting the, the junk sailors and the dependents. Uh, 
you, you started taking on their customs, and, and you had to notice the way they observed their customs with you. Uh, the fact that I had a background in anthropology made it a lot easier to assimilate with this because I, I understood that you don't judge another person's culture by your own, so I, I approached everything with an open mind. And uh, we got used to their food, we got used to their customs, uh, they're happy people, even though they, they had nothing but what they had they'd share with you. And the fact that their sailors were getting paid next to nothing, uh, I felt sorry for them. But when you're fighting for your own country, what other choice do you have? So as you look at that time in Vietnam, you look at all your experiences, it seemed to be uh, your destiny. I mean, it seemed to be you kept going back. What? Why? Why? Actually, it's something. Something drew me. I uh, when I got back home and uh, I saw the attitude of the people in the states, and I saw they're wounded in the hospitals that I I went to. Uh, I said, I'm not happy here. I'm really not happy. And the place I found the most joy in my life at that period of time was back in Vietnam with people that I could assimilate with and had something in common. And uh, they had a cause, and it actually gave me something to look forward to. And that's that's basically what brought me back, uh, my own personal happiness, but the idea that maybe I could do something to help them too. And you ended up marrying a Vietnamese woman. I sure did. I had to bring back something. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously you were uh, felt very comfortable, very uh, much a part of that whole culture. Absolutely, absolutely. I uh, I always felt that uh, uh, I've I've done a lot of traveling with the Navy and also as a civilian with the government, and uh, I enjoy going to other countries and learning of their cultures and eating their foods. But in Vietnam, I found I found a tranquility even amongst the the uproar of war. Uh, and the constant feeling that you never knew when somebody was going to jump out from behind a tree and shoot at you. But uh, not that withstanding, it gave me an inner peace, and uh, to this day, I still think back on it, and, and I can relax. What are your views for sending advisors into a foreign country You know, when they're requesting our help? Is, is that something that is very important for us to do? I think so, because how do you help somebody unless you know what the basis for requesting that help comes from? Uh, by embedding people within the the, uh, the military, they get to learn the psyche of the people they're working with. And then, then you get the feeling that you really know what you're fighting for. By going into a strange country like the way we did in Vietnam, we had no idea of how to fight that war. I mean, we went in blind, and by putting advisors in, that that was a, I think, a, a special move because it gave an insight as to how they think and how they work. Whereas if we were on our own, like many of our troops were, uh, you have to learn on-the-job training, and that can be costly in lives and money and ammunition, etc. How did you? Just keep track of uh, all these experiences. Did, did you uh, have a journal, or how did you do all that? No, actually, uh, the first time I got out of the uh, hospital, they put me in the public affairs office there in Philadelphia, in the shipyard. And I, I had a typewriter because they made me uh, somewhat of an assistant public affairs officer while my fate was being decided. And... Uh, I started typing out a sheet about coming to Vietnam for the first time in the airplane and what my thoughts were. And then I just tucked it away. And then over the years, uh, I would jot down random notes when things would come back to me. But it wasn't until I finally retired from the service and uh, came down here to Florida that I started writing in earnest. And uh, all the times I would tell my friends about exploits, and when I say talk about exploits, it was only the, the funny parts. Uh, one thing you'll notice about most Vietnam vets is they don't speak about the horrors that they saw or the bad times. 
And and I felt that uh, the only ones that talk like that are the wannabes. Uh, and you can always spot them in a crowd. But the ones that really went through some hell never talked about it. Me, on the other hand, I had more humorous times than, than disastrous times in Vietnam. And uh, I like to relate them because they weren't, they weren't common to the United States. So all these people that I traveled with eventually saying, why don't you put this down in writing? Why don't you write it down? And then as I accrued a bunch of grandchildren, I said, how are my kids and my grandchildren going to know what I did in the war because they don't ask me and I don't have the time to tell them? And that's when I decided to sit down and put it down. And the more I wrote, the more my, my memory was bringing it back very, very vividly. Uh, the conversations in the book are almost verbatim, uh, and it's an astounding thing. My doctor is amazed also. Well, that is, I'm sure, um, that is going to mean a lot to children and grandchildren and, and posterity to have this kind of a record of your experiences, your thoughts, uh, your service for our country. We thank you, and and it's titled Pass Me the Rice. Robert G. K. is the author. Bob, tell us how to get your book. Well, it, uh, the publisher's author's house, and they have just been bought out by Penguin, I understand, who is probably the largest bookseller in the world. Uh, they could also be found on Amazon, uh, Books a Million, uh, just go on site, Google in my name, uh, or put my name in there, or pass me the rice. And uh, especially on Amazon, you'll find several biased reviews from uh, readers that uh, were very kind to me. Thank you, Bob, very much for being with us on Author Talk. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>